Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts, what I call the four I's, information, inputs, infrastructure, and insight. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today's guest is kind of magical. I'm giddy she's here with me today. Sunita Puri is a doctor and director of hospice and palliative care medicine at the University of Massachusetts. She's also the author of That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour, and someone who believes that words are the portal into our stories and that language is a doctor's most sacred tool, especially at the end of life. Today, Sunita and I will talk about life, death, dying with dignity, and many other things. Sunita, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. There are many things that you and I have in common, I would like to think. Um, <laughs> one of them is that you and I share this passion for thinking about human beings as characters in a story. That yes. They are more than just their lab results or the results of their CT scan. You and I both had this love for the part of medical school that wasn't just about data and informatics. It was about talking to patients. It was about that human connection. I'd love to start with the quote that inspired you so much from the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scripture. The soul wears the body like a coat and discards it at the time of death. Talk to me about what that means to you, Sunita, and how that has informed your career as someone who cares for patients at the most sacred parts of their lives. So that quote was one that I heard for the first time when I was actually very young. And in the introduction to my book, I talk about this scene with my dad and I, my mom is an anesthesiologist and she was on call in her residence. And my dad would take care of my brother and I, and that one evening we went, I still remember it very vividly. We went to Long John Silver's and he bought me a Hershey's chocolate bar after that. And then we came home and ate and we were looking at the sunset from our little apartment. I remember asking my dad, like, why can't the sky always look like this? It's so beautiful. Why do we have a dark night and, you know, a really blue, hot middle of the day sort of sky? And my dad said to me in that moment that everything in life is like the sky. It's beautiful. And then it's gone. And you need to learn that change is the only constant in life. And part of that change is the way our bodies change. One day I will grow old and walk with a cane. That plant over there in the corner at some point is going to wither and die. And our bodies will die too. But who you really are is not your body. 
And I was probably five years old at the time. And so these were huge concepts, but it said a lot about my dad that he wanted me to start my life understanding these things. And so the quote, the soul wears the body like a cloth and discards it at the time of death to me has always been a source of great comfort that knowing that who I really am. And when I look at my patients and I think about who they really are, sometimes I will tell them we're more than our physical form. And when your body is showing us that it's at its limit, that has nothing to do with how hard you're fighting or how much you want to live. And so that separation, that kind of spiritual concept I have found to be personally transformative, but also with my patients and their families to help them understand that whatever's going on biologically in their body has no bearing on who they really are. And I think that separation has brought people a lot of comfort and helped them to understand that we may be doing quote unquote everything for them. But their body itself as a biological organism may not be able to respond the way we want it to. I think it's beautiful. And as you just said, reassuring that a doctor would understand that the patient is more than what their CAT scan shows or what their body is doing to them at these very, very precious and precarious moments. You have described so beautifully, Sunita, how, how words are like your scalpel and how conversations are what you do. So before a surgical procedure, the surgeon is gowning and gloving and doing these elaborate rituals to make sure that the surgical field is sterile. You have a unique craft of language and words are the portal into your patient's story. That resonates incredibly with me as an internist. You know, I don't cut people open and you wouldn't really want me to because that would be bad. <laughs> <laughs> my tool and my craft as an aspiring writer is similar to yours. It's the relationship, it's the conversation, and it's the precision of the words that I'm delivering to the patient. Can yeah. you talk to me about the process that you go through like a surgeon does before a procedure? of entering a patient's room where you deliver hard news or you have a family meeting that is one of lots of emotion, where you're describing to patients with clarity and honesty what's happening to their body. And talk to me about the preparation and what you bring to that moment. I am, as you mentioned, a palliative care physician. And I think just for the listening audience to define what that is and how I approach it with my team, I think would be really important. Great. Palliative medicine, I think of it basically as attending to the suffering of patients and their families as they're facing the consequences of a serious illness. Serious illness could be someone getting into a car crash and being in the trauma ICU for a while on a lot of life support. It could be somebody who has stage four cancer and has just gotten their diagnosis, but is so sick that they're in the hospital. It could be somebody with heart failure who's still pretty functional, but who will die of their disease. The domains of suffering that we attend to are physical. So for example, I get called a lot to treat cancer pain or shortness of breath from emphysema. Their other domains are spiritual and emotional and existential. 
obviously the emotional impact of having a serious illness is enormous on everybody who loves the patient and the patient themselves. And then there's these kind of spiritual and existential questions of why would God do this to me? Or now that I'm really sick, I need to find God. And existentially, like, what does it mean? What is the purpose and meaning of my life when I've been a painter for 30 years and now I have ALS and I can't pick up my brush? And so the way we attend to all those domains is with a team. The team generally consists of a nurse or nurse practitioner, physicians, social workers, and spiritual care. And so what we do together is each bring our own lens to that patient and family, because no one person can do all of that together for sure. So if I've got a consult, let's say for somebody who has stage four cancer and is very, very sick and almost going to go to the ICU, that's how sick they are with an infection, for example. So I look at the chart, I look for advanced directives or any sort of documentation that this patient has had any conversations about what they would want for themselves or not. I will say in my experience, a lot of teams are very bad at having these discussions and documenting them. So a lot of what I have to do before a meeting is detective work. Like for example, I'll go to the oncology cancer doctors and say, so tell me about your assessment of how this cancer, where it's at, what you hope for in terms of the treatment, what are the outcomes you're looking for? So I get into their heads because they've been the ones talking to the patient and family up until they've asked for my help. And I need the doctors to ask for my help. I can't just go into a room, even though sometimes I wish I could, and just start talking to people about these important things. So I get the assessments from the teams. And very importantly, I ask the teams, what do you want to offer at this stage? And what have your conversations been like? So asking people, if your heart stopped, would you want us to do CPR is not a goals of care conversation because you're asking it in a vacuum. Mm. Part of my job is to lay out the landscape that they're traversing and they can make informed decisions based on that. So when I go into the room, usually with the teams, a big part of my job is to A, prepare the teams for how they're going to frame this. And B, talk to the family and patient really honestly about what they know, filling in the blanks. And if they don't have that information, then they can't really think about how much pain and suffering am I willing to go through if this is incurable versus curable. And then I talk a lot to them, like, tell me who you are. Tell me what's important to you in your life. Who matters to you? Tell me what a typical day is like. Tell me what the pain prevents you from doing. I'm not interested in pain scale. I'm interested in what it limits you from doing. And so I kind of do an assessment on my own and with the team together when I'm going to have a family meeting, very complicated dynamics can come up. I will say in my experience, I've often been called towards the end of someone's life. And it's a very different experience than getting called when they first get diagnosed so I can kind of get to know them. So the task is huge. I'm walking in as a stranger, trying to get at the most intimate parts of someone's life and make sure the other doctors are comfortable with 
what's going to come of the conversation. So it's a lot going on at once. And sometimes I feel like I'm a conductor of an orchestra, but the tuba player may start doing something else. The violinists may start playing something else. And so trying to really keep things in order and hold a space for all of the dynamics and then being very careful with my language. I think it's, as you just said, an enormous task. You don't always know the dynamics among the family and the players. I mean, some people are already in an acceptance mode. Some people are not in an acceptance mindset. Of course, there will be interpersonal dynamics that can come up. I think it's also important, as you have said so beautifully, and as I try to convey to my own patients in these tender moments, that palliative care is not synonymous with giving up. That shifting to hospice, like we just did with one of my patients who has terminal cancer, is not the same as let's throw in the towel. In fact, it's the opposite to me. It's about honoring the actuality of the patient's situation, and it's about putting their medical data in context. As you just said, it doesn't matter if your pain is 1, 3, 5, or 10. It's about what does that mean to you? What does that limit you from doing? And when we shift from a full court press to a let's be more thoughtful and intentional about the tools and interventions that we have at our disposal and put you back in the driver's seat of your story at the end of your life, that to me is really the best way to honor the patient and their last days, months, or however long they have. So for people listening, I think it's really important. And I think this is something we need to really help the broader public reframe. Palliative care is about dignity. It's about using the patient's story as our guide. And it's not about giving up. I mean, I think one of the challenges you've discussed, and I discuss with my patients all the time, is we have so much access to data and information and scans, and we almost have more tools and technology than we know how to process as humans and as physicians. And sometimes what people need at the end of their life is not more information and technology, but they need care. They need someone to look them in the eye and ask, as you have said, what does being a fighter mean to you? What does I'm looking for a miracle translate to in actual life? What does I want everything done, which is something you and I hear commonly What does that actually look like? And let's frame that conversation using the data and information we know about your condition and using your ideas of what life should be as a way to guide ourselves. I actually do a talk called Fighter Miracle Everything. Fighter Miracle Everything, because that's what people generally, when I deliver bad news, the reflex for a lot of people, it's also kind of a fight or flight reflex, is I want everything, I want a miracle, let's do this. And it's like we're kind of reading from a flawed cultural script that these are phrases that we hear all the time. The way I think of them is they're kind of stand-ins to stop a conversation from getting too intimate. My job then is to say, tell me what being a fighter means to you. Help me understand what you're fighting for. Mm. How do you understand the battle 
So I try to really kind of my writerly impulse is to follow their language. That's their cultural view on what's happening. You know, people bring up God and miracles. And I think, as you mentioned, like a lot of us physicians, just we don't know what to do because we think it's not our place to talk about God. It may not be in our personal belief system, but I really want to know what's the miracle you're hoping for? Because if you have to go back to that example, end stage cancer, and you're so sick that you might go to the ICU, the miracle might be that we can stabilize you, get the infection under control and help you to get home with hospice. That might be the miracle. If the miracle they're envisioning is that I'm going to fight through this and get more chemo and go back to a life that I had a year ago, I have to know that that's their image so I can work with them to say, I want that for you too. I want that more than anything. And I know everyone in this room does too. But I think if that's our plan A, we need our plan B. You stress the importance of honesty with patients. I think we all know as doctors and as human beings that honesty is a crucial ingredient in any relationship. It's foundational. I think though, for a lot of physicians who are fixers and we've been trained and taught from an early age to prolong life, that's why we go to medical school. We think much more about quantity of life than quality of life, in my opinion, that it's looked at as a failure if we don't cheer on the patient's dream for a miracle, if we don't stand on the sidelines and say, yes, you're a fighter, when actually honesty and truth about the situation is not a failure on the part of medicine, it's not a failure on the part of the doctor, you know, we aren't magicians, we aren't miracle workers. And the honesty is really, to me, the biggest gift if you convey it with as you say, radical compassion yeah. for yourself as well, for the patient, of course, but also for yourself as perhaps delivering information that is not comfortable and is hard. One of the patients that I talk about in the book is this young man. He's in his late 20s. He got an endoscopy and basically had a huge bleed from his esophagus, had CPR for like 20 minutes, but came back essentially in a vegetative state. He had a trach, he had a feeding tube, and his parents were these very devout Catholics. And it was one of the first times in my training that I had to speak to parents because I'm not a pediatrician. I do internal medicine like you do. So I was sitting there with these parents who had already suffered a terrible, unexpected tragedy. He would never speak to them again. He would never eat what he loved. I remember his mother telling me he loved oranges and I just want to see him eat an orange again. I'd spent so much time with them that it was really hard for me to be there in that moment with them and help them understand that their son, by virtue of his condition, had had so many infections and gotten so many antibiotics that the one we had to give him, the last line was unlikely to work and that he was probably going to die of this infection. And I was sitting in the room and I was looking at them and I was just thinking, God, I don't want to do this. I can't even imagine the pain that this is going to cause. 
But then something in me and something that came up in the writing of the book when I was telling the story is this idea that honesty is the compassion. That compassion doesn't mean withholding information. It means giving people what they need to know so they can experience and grapple with the real human emotions that come with imminently losing a child. I kind of garbled through telling them this and my attending was there with me to help kind of smooth over what I was trying to say. But I just remember thinking later on also that how paternalistic is it for me to want to protect them from what is. And I think in medicine, we use so much euphemism and we don't say things directly because we find it awkward or we're attached to the patient. But I think part of quote unquote, doing everything for a patient is being transparent and honest and letting them make the choices they need to make and feel what they need to feel as they move through a process that we witness. And I really can't emphasize enough how much that has helped me and has helped me coach my trainees and other attendings to just say the honesty is the compassion. This is the biggest gift you can bestow on them. And there's a way to do it that doesn't feel brutal or cruel. I think it's fair to say that doctors like to fix problems and that many of us have not been taught how to have uncomfortable conversations. Many of us didn't learn this in our own cultural or family lives. I certainly didn't learn as a child, I think much like you, how to navigate unpleasant feelings and, and not to mention talk about them. It's really critical, not just in medicine, but in life, to make sure that we are checking in with our feelings and our thoughts and then really looking at how those thoughts and feelings are translated into words. I love how you describe this notion of fracturing euphemism. Instead of giving these long-winded, meandering explanations for why you may have a CAT scan that shows diffuse metastatic cancer, or in the case of a non-medical relationship, why you're decided not to continue with this dating relationship and here are the myriad reasons why you and I are not the perfect fit. Instead of the long-winded sentences like I'm giving right this minute, just be honest. Yeah. Be honest. Be concise. Be precise. And make sure that what you're saying is matching how you're feeling. Because that is not doing anyone a service if you are beating around the bush with language. Exactly. And, you know, one way I try to describe it to the teams and one way that I just kind of reframed it for myself is thinking about talking to people as though you're writing an essay, that you want to be really upfront at the beginning, what this conversation is about and having your bullet points. I usually tell the teams, people can't really absorb more than two or three big takeaways. So I want this meeting to be built around those takeaways. I can help navigate the things that come up, but we need to stick to the talking points because otherwise I remember a meeting with a family where the surgical chief resident was there and this patient had a very complicated surgical history and he was very clearly at the end of his life. But instead of focusing on that, the surgical resident drew this very complex 
drawing on a whiteboard in this conference room about the patient's anatomy, about everything that had already been done and how everything went wrong. You know, there's an anastomotic leak. And I was just watching this and looking at the family. And I think everybody was totally confused, including me. And my feedback to the resident was that we don't need to go over all of that again because that's not the purpose of this meeting. If people ask questions about it, get into it, but you need to focus the meeting. So this is not about you making yourself feel like you've done all this work and you want them to see that. There's a time and place for those sorts of things, but that meeting was not it. And so thinking like a writer, what are the things that I wanna convey? How am I gonna convey them? I will sometimes make people write out the sentences and have them in front of them in the meeting to refer to, because that's how important these conversations are. You need to prepare like reviewing a CT scan before you open someone's abdomen in the OR. It's the same thing. And I think there are people in other specialties who think that they know how to do palliative care, have these conversations, because we can talk to people. We know how to talk to patients. But our specialty exists because of medicine's shortcomings, because medicine doesn't know, in terms of our training, how to treat pain, how to talk about distress, and how to have these conversations in a way that's nuanced and actually advances the patient's plan of care. And I have dealt with a lot of people, particularly in oncology, who think they already know palliative care. And not only is that somewhat insulting to our specialty, but it says so much about why our specialty is needed. You're right. There are two inevitabilities in life, right? Birth and death. And I think there's a joke about like taxes also. But the point is that, you know, we cannot outsmart death. Death can actually be beautiful. It can be elegant. It can be dignified. I've seen it. I was privileged enough to be part of the process of dying. One of my patients at 39 died from stage four lung cancer. And being part of that family and process and being her primary care doctor and leading that team alongside hospice was honestly one of the biggest learning experiences and moments of growth for me personally. People said to me, oh my gosh, that must have been horrible. That must have been so sad. That must have been tragic. And I said to one of her friends, who's actually a patient of mine as well, I felt like the luckiest person at that funeral. I got to have a front row seat to her beauty and grace and just to walk that walk with somebody. And also it happened to be a family who was so appropriate and they had their expectations managed. I don't know if it was because we talked about things every day for months and months along the way or if they just got it, but they understood when I said, look, it's time to transition from full court chemo, do everything to hospice. They got it. You and I were talking about this before the show. So meeting people where they are is crucial and using precise language, making sure that we're checking our egos at the door and our natural predisposition to not want to be uncomfortable. And then also just zooming out on the situation and saying, as you say to your residents, and I love that you're a swearer like I am, what the f*** are we doing? I mean, you have to step away from the minute to minute and zoom out and think, what are the goals here? In our training, it's just so easy to keep doing what we're doing. And we go on rounds every day and 
you know, again, to use an example from the ICU, somebody might be on a ventilator and continuous dialysis and medicines to keep their blood pressure normal. And every day we round and we kind of look at the numbers and we say, okay, go up on the blood pressure meds or call the dialysis doctors because, you know, the kidney function is getting worse despite being on this machine. And we don't stop and think, what does that mean? What does it mean? that we cannot get this person off three forms of life support and it's been 10 days. And I think that kind of being on a hamster wheel and keeping going, there's a lot of things that I think contribute to that, which is maybe another conversation. But I try to tell people the way I think of it is I want you to be the bird on the mountaintop looking down at the scene. I don't want you to be the bird on a branch of one tree because that's where we always are in medicine. I want you to look from the top of the mountain and tell me what you see, because that's what you need to help the patient see. I just don't think it's an intuitive part of our training because it's almost like we don't have time to think that way. And that's something that I think when I ask the residents, what the fuck are we doing here, guys? <laughs> and like, they've understood my personality and the fact, you know, they all got it because they often felt the same way, but they didn't have the authority to challenge the person running the show, the air attending. I think giving them that set of tools and helping them to know that is the great question of medicine is what are we trying to accomplish and what are the consequences of going down this path? If you're on the mountaintop, you can see the scene, you can see what rivers go where, you can see where the trails are. You can see if there's a boulder in the middle of the trail. And that's the metaphor you need to keep in mind when you're talking to people. You need to zoom out. Sorry, I can go on about this forever. No, I think it's great. And so I think it's a great visual. I'm such a visual person, and I love the idea of looking at things from the mountaintop. Tell me, Sunita, if you will, how your work and your roots in a family that was deeply spiritual and that really gave you a love for language, despite, I think, your family not being naturally inclined to talk about hard things and feelings, how has that affected you personally in terms of living with purpose and understanding your mortality? What does this all mean to you as someone who does this professionally? When I was growing up, we talked a lot about things in the abstract and in spiritual terms. And one thing I wrote about in the book was going through actually a fairly bad eating disorder. And that was when we started to have to talk about things. You know, my parents grew up very poor in India. They were like, why is our daughter not eating? They had to, at that point, we all had to start being more honest. And it did not happen overnight by any means, but I have to credit my mother for really pushing me to talk about how I felt. It was unexpected and so important in my own healing process to know that someone cared and was willing to verbalize how worried she was. And it opened a way for me to talk about how I felt. I think even in that instance, I had to remember that trying to control my body, trying to make it into something that it wasn't naturally, that was not the way in which I wanted to live my life. It wasn't 
the outlook I had on my body. And I'm not trying to say that I had this great spiritual awakening and then it was over. It took a long time. And I think it's still a challenge to accept what is, whether that's the body you live in or the dying of your patient. And I think what this all kind of means to me, I mean, I feel really grateful that I practice this field because the things I see help me to have conversations with myself. I see people who have tremendous regrets about some things. I see people who have found a way to make peace with their mistakes. There are certain patients and moments that I really carry with me and try to remind myself, none of this hustle and bustle, none of the pressure I put on myself to be this or that, none of the questioning like, does this oncologist like working with me or did I piss them off? At the end, I'm not going to be thinking about any of that. I'm going to be thinking about things that are much bigger. I'm not perfect at this by any means, but I really try when I'm aggravated by a situation or something comes up that feels really horrible, either at work or in the rest of my life, trying to really think about is this something that I want to carry with me? There's a story that relates to this. It's two monks walking and they come across a woman. I think I might be misremembering the story, but one of the monks offers to carry the woman across the river and he does. And he's thinking, did I upset my colleague? Cause I picked up the woman and he's stewing about it. And an hour or so later, he says, did I upset you? And the other monk said, you put the woman down, you carried her across the lake a long time ago. Why are you still carrying her? I find that story analogous to what I try to take away from my patients and what I see. I am not a perfect human being. I have many flaws, but I try really hard to learn something about what it means to think about what I'm carrying and what I'm going to put down, given what I've seen. I feel the same way. I think in many ways, like you, I'm a flawed work in progress. I look at medicine as this incredible opportunity that I had no idea about when I decided to become a doctor. I really mean this when I say I've learned more from my patients and their stories, particularly in the face of adversity and hardship, than I ever did in medical school. I am a constant student of the human condition. Yeah. It, it shocks me and excites me at how people can struggle and grapple with hard things. And the power of the human spirit is extraordinary. I wonder if you could talk now sort of at the end as we wrap up, you know, in medicine, we don't learn about how to talk about God and spirituality and patient care. That's just sort of not part of the deal. How do you look at your spirituality as something that informs the way you live and work? My relationship to my spirituality has been at different points in my life, intense and less intense. You know, I'm going through this transition now where I'm moving from one job to start another and I'm moving across the country. I really try to talk to God when I am just overwhelmed and wondering, I'm frightened. At times I'm really excited. Are you going to be with me? Was this the right choice? And before I took this really wonderful opportunity in Massachusetts, I said to him, if this is not for me, then don't let them offer me the job. And then they did. 
of all of the offers I was contending with, that was the one I felt the most strongly about because of who I was going to be working with and what I could be getting to do. But that was kind of like this whole mysterious unfolding of everything. I try to talk to God throughout the process. The two spiritual lessons that I think are hardest and most important are surrender and acceptance. And those are the things I talk to God about. I think that it's a very healing process to believe that there is something greater than me that I will return to and merge with that is watching me. And there are times that I feel intensely that God is with me. And I know that might sound crazy for listeners to hear a doctor talking about this, but I do think that faith and medicine are not oppositional, that there is room for both and that both should be accommodated because both are part of the human condition. People have to believe in something bigger, whether that's a term like the universe or a specific God. We want to believe that something mysterious is guiding us. And I think that's kind of what my spirituality has been to me. It's also been looking at other beings and seeing them as no different than me. So I look at my cats and my dog and I see it in their eyes that the same spirit that animates me is in them. And I've tried really hard with people who have been very challenging in my life to try to do the same, but it is not easy. And I am not a guru, even though I'm Indian. <laughs> oh my so God, you're funny. It's all a I mean, progress. I just have to comment on the acceptance and surrender concept, which, you know, maybe because I'm on the eve of my 50th birthday or because it's something I believe passionately about in general, similar to this notion that palliative care is not giving up. It's not the same thing. Acceptance is such an important part of humanity. And in medicine, it's so important that we convey to patients when it's appropriate to accept an unpleasant reality. And what I see all the time in my own life, but also in my patients, is this desire to control the uncontrollable. Yeah. To spend a lot of time controlling things that we cannot control instead of accepting the things we cannot control and putting our energy instead into the things that we can try to control. You know, the serenity prayer, which is I was just thinking something yeah. I quote all the time. In fact, I wrote an article for The Atlantic about the COVID serenity prayer. The concept being that if we could only have the wisdom to know the difference between what we can control and what we cannot control, and then direct our finite energy and resources into the things we can control and have the grace and wisdom and guide in the case of you and me guiding patients to let go of things that are out of our control. That's sort of the holy grail to me of humanity. And it's something I work on as well. I'm constantly trying to control things I can't control and have to be reminded the hard way that, you know what, yeah. that is something you need to let go of and not carry with you emotionally or try to do physically. That's to me the biggest gift of patient care is seeing that play out, seeing people learn that the hard way, and then seeing the beautiful ways in which acceptance plays out in people's lives. The gift of more brain space and more emotional freedom from letting go of things that are not able to control. And even like in the space of end of life, people, I try to remind them that we can have these plans for how the end of your life is going to look but I can't guarantee that's how it's going to look because you may want to die at home in hospice, but you may have something happen to you that has nothing to do with your cancer or your heart failure. You could get into a car accident. 
or you could be at home at hospice and may have a harder time being comfortable than you anticipated. And so I think even in the space of talking to people about what they hope for, I try to leave a little room for knowing, again, this is our plan A, but plan A may not look exactly like you want it to look. We have a lot more conversations now about how to control and time our deaths. The physician-assisted death movement, for example, people wanting to go out on their own terms, which I support very much. So I think this kind of holding the plan and the possibility that the plan may not look as you want it to look. I think even in this space, it's so important. And it reminds me of people who had birth plans, right? Um, oh, people yeah. who want the doula and the temperature of the room a certain way, and they want Enya playing in the background as they deliver their baby on time, et cetera. It just doesn't always work like that. I mean, whether it's God or Mother Nature or, quote, the universe, our best laid plans do not always pan out. Yep. And that's it's true in, in birth and death and really in life. Sunita, thank you so much for joining me. I've learned so much from you. I've learned so much from your book. I'm looking forward to seeing more of your writing, to working with you as a writing partner. And more importantly, thank you so much for just being honest today and precise with your words and beautiful and elegant as you are. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.